passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, for the rest of us, uh, this morning we begin a new sermon series on the book of 1 Samuel. And I'm really excited for this. Uh, Our sermon series is called Looking for the True King, because that's really what the book of 1 Samuel is all about. It's a book that is about kingship, how God establishes his king over a small kingdom that's located on the other side of the globe thousands of years ago. And, and as we consider that, it's probably worth asking and considering for us this morning, if we're so far removed from this book, thousands of miles, thousands of years later, does this actually matter for us? Does this book really matter for us? And, and of course, there's, there's other things that, that influence this as well. Living 250-some years after the American resolution, or Revolution and after our nation rejected the idea of a monarchy, is, is the idea of a kingship, is the idea of a king something that still matters for us today? It's really easy for us to approach the book of 1 Samuel and, and look at it as just a collection of, of really cool stories, uh, fascinating stories. My kids certainly think that's the case. Uh, when we're doing family devotions I, and we ask them, what do you want to read about? Uh, nine times out of ten, it's David and Goliath, of course. And, uh, and we, we can have this mindset, this approach to the book of 1 Samuel that says this is a good collection of stories of, of how we should and, and shouldn't live our lives. And that's certainly true. That, that is something that we do get from the book of 1 Samuel. And yet, that at its core misses the profound claim of the book of 1 Samuel. It's, it's not something that's just true for the people of Israel 3,000 years ago. It's true for us as well, that we need God's king. 1 Samuel, all about the fact that we need God's king. King. That's the heart of 1 Samuel. It's really the heart of 2 Samuel as well, the heart of this morning's sermon. We need the Lord's promised king. The answer that this sermon's question, the title asks, do we really need a king, is, is a resounding yes. But it's not just that we need a king. We need a specific type of king. And 1 Samuel, the majority of this book, we see this sharp contrast between the type of king that the people want, Saul, and the type of king that the Lord has for his people, and that is David. It's not enough to have a king. We need the Lord's promised king. So this morning, we're really going to just frame our time in the book of 1 Samuel. We're just going to look at some themes from this book that hopefully, Lord willing, will help us to understand this book a little bit more fully. But before we do that, we're going to jump in to a little bit of context about this book. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, it starts with this story of this man named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. And Hannah and Elkanah are the parents of of the prophet Samuel. After the birth of Samuel, Hannah sings this song, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And this song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to go into it uh, more in depth in a few weeks, but I want us to, to first just, um, first I want to just encourage you to take a few moments this week and read it, because 1 Samuel chapter 2 is really the lens through which we can understand and interpret all of 1 Samuel. 
This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. This is at the end of Hannah's song. This song that she sings after the birth of her son. Immediately after Hannah gives birth to Samuel, she bursts into song, but maybe surprisingly for us, her song isn't about Samuel. It isn't about how God has primarily answered her in her struggle with infertility. It's it's not about her or her family at all. Instead, Hannah's song at the beginning of, of 1 Samuel is about the Lord. And more specifically, it's about the Lord's promised king, how God is going to be at work saving his people. At the very beginning of 1 Samuel, we see it's very clear that we need the Lord's promised king. Hannah gets that. She understands that at the very beginning, that, that more than anything else, she needs the Lord's promised king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see these themes appear over and over in this book. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look and consider just verse 9 and verse 10. Please follow along as I read aloud. He, the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Father, as as we uh, consider your word this morning, we ask that you would enable us to hear rightly and to respond obediently to the message of your word. We thank you that you have given us your word this morning. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you still speak through it. We thank you that it is profitable for us and for our growth and for our progress in the faith. And God, we ask that you would, as we open your word, that you would help us. Help us this morning that we might be a people who increasingly seek your glory in our lives, seek the glory of your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, I mentioned that 1 Samuel is is not primarily just a a collection of stories that serve as good and bad examples. 1 Samuel is one of the most important parts of the story, the grand story of the Bible, that God has a plan to save humanity, and he reveals in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel that that plan to save humanity is going to be accomplished through a son of David. David, of course, is the chosen king, God's anointed king that we see in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. And to appreciate the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. At least to Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, or Abram in that moment, God calls him and says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I am showing you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless your name and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So in Genesis chapter 12, God enters into a relationship with Abraham and promises as a part of that relationship that that God is going to bless him. But this relationship with Abraham is not something that is just for Abraham. As we see in verse 3, God intends to use Abraham to bless all of the nations, all of the families of the earth. And we ask ourselves, after reading Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, how, how exactly is God going to do that? And we, we're not sure yet. God hasn't revealed that part of his plan. And centuries pass, and now Abraham's descendants are, are living as slaves in Egypt, but God doesn't forget the promises that he has made to Abraham, to his descendants. And so God delivers the people from Egypt and recommits himself to his people Israel. For the sake of his name. Exodus chapter 19, we're given a little bit more of a glimpse or an understanding of how God is going to bless the nations. Exodus 19 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says one of the reasons why he has saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt is for two things. First is so that they can be a kingdom of priests. And second, so that they can be a holy nation. This word holy literally just means set apart or completely different than everything else. So it seems like God's plan to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham, through his descendants, is to have a people who are so radically different than all of the nations that surround them that the nations see this radically different people and their special relationship with God, and they're called out of their idolatry and into a relationship with the one true God. And as a part of this, God gives the people of Israel land. Before they enter into the land, God says, you know, you know what? This is, this is how I want you to live as a set-apart people, to reflect my glory to the nations. And yet when the people of Israel enter into the land, rather than being holy, rather than being set apart, we see that rather than being distinct from the idolatrous nations surrounding them so that they can be an influence for these nations, the opposite actually happens. That rather than being an influence, a set-apart nation, the book of Judges tells us that they become indistinguishable from the nations that they are supposed to reflect God. Two, this holy nation, this is what the book of Judges is about. The holy nation that God has called is really actually acting like a pagan one. You get to the end of the book of Judges, and the last book, last verse of the book of Judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges has some of the worst, most horrific stories in the entire Bible. Even Israel's leaders, they're called judges. 
They act like the leaders of the pagan nations. They worship idols. They offer their children up as sacrifices. The book of Judges ends with some of the worst pictures of of what Israel is like, some of these rated R stories in the Bible. And Judges ends by saying it's because there is no king in Israel that everyone is doing as they saw fit. The book of Judges makes the claim that if Israel is actually going to be holy, if they're actually going to be set apart, if they're actually going to be a part of God's plan to be a blessing to all the nations, then they are going to need a king. Israel does not have a king, and they are going to need one if they are going to be a part of God's plan. And they're going to need a king that's going to show them how to truly love and truly follow the Lord, their true king. And 1 Samuel comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. The year is about 1100 B.C., 1000 B.C. Israel is led by this judge, and his name is Eli. He is also a priest. As the book of Judges reminds us, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But in 1 Samuel, we have a transition. We have a story, or as a part of the story, we see the story of how God chooses his king. And how God is going to one day use that king to bless all the nations of the world. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and, and I, I say that to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together because uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually just one book. It's the book of Samuel. So we, we split it apart because it was too long as one book, um, but you, you have to understand 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together, otherwise you don't understand what the book is saying and, and the, the message of the book. This, this is not just a, a collection of really cool military victories. It's not this collection of of palace intrigue. It really gives us a a fuller picture of God's plan that culminates in the person of Jesus. And in in doing so, the book of 1 Samuel reveals to us our need, not just for a king, but for the Lord's promised king. This is made even clearer to us as we look at the structure or the the acts, if you will, of 1 Samuel. There's three parts to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel verses, or chapters 1 through 7 tells us about the rise of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And then you get into the second part, the second act of 1 Samuel, and you have the rise of Saul in chapters 8 through 15. This is the rise of Saul is the people's king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king, and we want a king to be like all of the other nations. And so that's exactly what God does. He gives them a king just like all of the other nations. And then we get to the last part of the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapters 16 through 31, and we have the rise of David. After the people have seen what their king is like, now we see what the Lord's king is like. And we can learn a whole lot about God's plan of redemption, his plan to save people, by looking at how different David and Saul are in 1 Samuel. 
So let's actually go ahead and do that. We're going to go ahead and look at how David and Saul reveal to us a little bit of, of what this book is about. We're going to look at three themes that we're going to see over and over as we consider the book of 1 Samuel. Lord willing, identifying these themes right now here at the beginning, it'll increase our delight in God's Word. It, it'll increase our wonder in, in the Word of God, of what God is doing here in this book and, and this plan that God has in the book of First Samuel. So let's go ahead and look at three themes. One theme that we're going to see repeatedly over and over and over in the book of First Samuel is that God is the sovereign king. God is the sovereign king. Israel's king is not the highest authority in the land. He is not the final say. That position belongs to God alone. This is actually made very clear to the people of Israel centuries before the book of 1 Samuel. Before they even enter into the promised land, God makes it very clear to Moses that there will be a future king in Israel, and that future king must be subservient to the Lord himself. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20 give us these instructions of what Israel's king must be like. Consider how Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 14 and 15 describe the king that will one day come to Israel. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, you may indeed set a king over you. Notice the key phrase here. Whom the Lord your God will choose. A king is not good enough. The king must be the one that God chooses. And any king over the people of Israel is only the king because they have been entrusted with that role by the true king, by God himself. And then you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. All of these instructions that we see in this chapter describe what this king is to be like in a way that reminds them that they are not the final say, that they are not the ultimate authority in the land of Israel. Only God himself is the king. Notice that Hannah actually mentions this in her song. She's talking about the future king of the people of Israel. And she makes it very clear that the people will not be delivered by a king. The people won't be delivered by strength of arms, but only by God himself. The people are utterly dependent upon God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9, once more. The Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, notice this phrase, for not by might shall a man prevail. The Lord himself is the one who works on behalf of his people. God is the one who will guard and defend his faithful. It is not a king, but the Lord who will deliver his people from their enemies. It's not a king who will do that. Only God can do that. And we see this in one of the most famous stories of the Bible in David and Goliath. David confronts Goliath and notice what he says, where he places his confidence about the upcoming victory. It's not because he's a really good shot with a sling. 
1 Samuel chapter 17. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. If you're familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the story of David and Goliath, moments before this, Saul actually says, all right, David, you can go ahead and go face Goliath. And then what does he do? He tries to dress him in the best armor. David has this mindset where he says, only God can deliver us. And Saul says, all right, if you're going to go do this, you need the best tools available. And there's this contrast between Saul in verses 38 and 39 trying to dress David in his armor with, God, with David's commitment and, and trust in God who will deliver his people. Saul implicitly rejects the ultimate authority of God through a lack of faith. Whereas David This is the rock upon which he stands, that God is the one who will save his people. This recognition that God alone is the sovereign king is is seen throughout the life of David, countless other actions. I can't wait to, to unpack them in this book. One of the other things that we see is that while David is anointed to become the king, In 1 Samuel chapter 16, he doesn't actually become the king of all of Israel until 2 Samuel chapter 5. Over a decade between when God says, you are going to be the king, and when he actually becomes the king over all of Israel. And in the midst of of those years, he has the perfect opportunity, not once, but twice, to seize the kingdom from Saul, and yet he refuses. 1 Samuel chapter 24 tells us that while Saul is out hunting for David in order to kill him, he unknowingly falls into David's hands while he's going to the bathroom. And David's friends and his his counselors say, this is the moment God has anointed you to become the king. This is the time where you seize what God has promised to you. And then we see David's words in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Saul is trying to kill David. David knows that one day he will become the king. He's been promised the throne. It seems like this is the moment. He'd be completely and utterly justified in killing Saul in this moment, and yet David recognizes that to do so would not be an attack against Saul. It'd actually be an attack against God. Because Saul, even though he is corrupt and even though he has lost the kingship, 
someday, he is still the Lord's anointed. And David knows that, that God alone is the sovereign king, and he's going to leave this in God's hands. He's not going to grasp after what God has promised, but he's going to trust that because God is the king, God is going to do what is best. David is not the final authority. God alone is. And over and over and over, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that God is sovereign. That God is the one who is in charge. That God is the true king. And what we also see, as we work our way through 1 Samuel, is that for David, this reality isn't just a theological exercise. This isn't just something that he says as a part of his statement of faith or, or what he believes. It radically transforms his day-to-day actions. And really, that's, that's our second theme that we're going to see over and over in the book of 1 Samuel. Not only that God is the sovereign king, but also because God is the king, that must lead to our obedience. That we should be a people of obedience because God is the king. It's not enough for us to say and and really believe God is in control if that does not transform the way that we live our lives each and every day. If the fact that God is in control does not transform our obedience each and every day. If God is indeed sovereign, if God is indeed the king, then it absolutely follows that we should respond to him and what he does and says and asks with obedience. Again, 1 Samuel makes this abundantly clear. We first see this in the contrast between the family of Eli, which we're going to look at starting next week, and the family of Samuel. And then again, through the the contrast between the family of Saul and the family of David, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26, shows us that there's this family of priests, some of the leaders of the people of Israel, and they're contrasted with the family of Samuel, the priests, those who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel are worthless men, according to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. We see that they steal from God in verses 13 and 14. They rob people who come in to worship, verses 15 and 16. They're even sleeping with the women who are serving outside of the tabernacle in verse 22. They're worthless people, and yet you contrast that, this disobedience of those who are in power, you have this example of this little boy, Samuel, who is ministering before the Lord in verse 18 of chapter 2. In contrast to the wicked priests, we have this passage that describes Samuel at the end of, of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. You see, God cares about the obedience, or really the lack thereof, of obedience of his people. And in response to the disobedience of the priest, they're removed from the presence of God. One of the things that we'll see as we work our way through 1 Samuel is that this obedience is rooted in hearing from God. Hearing the word of God. We see this already in the life of Samuel in chapter 3. 
And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So Samuel is someone who hears the word of God and that motivates him to live a righteous life. That he hears God speak and Samuel responds with obedience. That's what obedience is. Hearing God speak and responding to what God has said. We see this over and over in the book of 1 Samuel. That David faithfully inquires of the Lord. We'll encounter that phrase a number of times. He, he inquires of God to see what he should do. On the contrast, Saul does not. And it culminates at the end of Saul's life in 1 Samuel chapter 28. He tries to inquire of God and God refuses to answer him. And so instead of figuring out, hey, you know what, maybe I should change my life, he instead goes and finds a medium, basically a witch, and says, hey, I want you to tell me what I should do by communicating with the dead for me. There's this contrast between those who inquire of the Lord and those who refuse because of a lack of obedience. 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see the life of Saul. He's preparing for this battle with the Philistines. The people are growing restless, and, and Saul wants to attack the Philistines before it's too late, but he doesn't want to do that without first seeking God's blessing. And so, and <laughs> this really weird twist, he, he, he decides to seek God's blessing by disobeying God. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, he offers a sacrifice he's forbidden to do. In verse 13, Samuel tells him what's wrong. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For Saul, the expedience of the moment is greater than the importance of obeying God. He sees he's going to lose people. And so he says, all right, I got to do whatever I can to keep them here, even if that means that I have to disobey God. Two chapters later, Saul does something similar. God commands Saul to slaughter all of the animals that they capture from the Amalekites when they defeat him. But Saul decides that he knows better than God does, and he knows what God wants more than God knows what God wants. And so he spares all of these animals so that he can offer them as a sacrifice. God is not impressed. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great, a light, a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The very next verse reveals the heart of Saul's problem. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The heart of Saul's problem is not that he doesn't know enough. It's because he doesn't think that God is worth listening to. That he knows better than God. That what God has commanded him to do isn't worth 
following. And so time and time again, in the life of Saul, we see someone who may have the right theological convictions, might, might be able to profess the right things, and yet that doesn't lead to obedience in their life. Throughout our time in 1 Samuel, we are going to be challenged to put our belief in a sovereign God, one who is completely and utterly in control, and to practice each and every day. It's one thing for us to say, God is in control. And it's quite another to have to live that conviction out when your life is falling apart. And you look at the end of 1 Samuel, and David's life is falling apart. But he trusts that God is sovereign, that God is going to keep his promises. And so he remains faithful in obeying the word of God. One final thing, one final theme we'll see from 1 Samuel. We need a faithful king. We need a faithful king. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I mentioned earlier that Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is the lens through which we should read all of 1 Samuel. Here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we're, getting, we're given this preview of the book that, that God, the king, is going to strengthen his chosen king, and will exalt his horn. And this word horn is just a a common symbol in ancient Israel to refer to authority. So God is going to exalt the authority of his anointed. So the question at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, is who is the Lord's anointed king? And 1 Samuel plays it out and makes it very clear that it is David it is not Saul who is God's anointed king. First Samuel shows us the rise and also the fall of Saul because of his disobedience, but it shows us the rise of David because of his obedience. And if 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 asks us this question, who is God's anointed king? The answer is very clearly David. But it's also very clearly not just David. Because you get to the end of 1 Samuel and then the end of of 2 Samuel, and we see that we need a better king. We need a more faithful king. We need a better Messiah. Look at verse 10 again. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Messiah. This word anointed literally just means Messiah. They're the same word in Hebrew. And while 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 is absolutely saying that David is the Lord's anointed king, and we see that 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, this song about the Lord's anointed king is partially fulfilled in the reign of David. 
that some of the nations that surround Israel are subjugated to Israel because of David. And yet it's also very clear that God is not judging all of the nations, that God hasn't accomplished his plan the way that that he says that he will by the end of the story. That we need a faithful king. We need a king that's better than David. We need a Messiah. Not Not a lowercase m Messiah, but an uppercase m Messiah. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel make it very clear that David is not the one that we are looking for. 1 Samuel should ultimately point us to the true king, should point us to Jesus. It's not enough for us to read 1 Samuel and to follow in the footsteps of David to avoid the folly of Saul When we open up 1 Samuel, it reveals to us our need for a faithful king, our our need for King Jesus. Really, it's it's worth tweaking our summary statement of the heart of 1 Samuel with just one crucial addition. We don't just need the Lord's promised king. We need the Lord's promised king, Jesus. We need the Lord's promised king, Jesus. Jesus, like the people of Israel 3,000 years ago, we are looking for the true king. But unlike the people of Israel thousands of years ago, we see that the true king at long last is revealed in Jesus. As we read 1 Samuel Our hearts should be turned to a greater trust in God, the sovereign king. They should be turned to a greater obedience to all the things that God asks because he's the king. But it should also turn our hearts toward a greater love for Jesus, the true faithful king. If you study the Old Testament historical books that tell the life of Israel and the land, the lives of all of these different kings, you'll notice that the hearts of the people always follow the heart of their king. There are exceptions to that. But when there's a good king, the people return to the Lord. And when there's a bad king, wickedness flourishes. A faithful king is good for the entire nation. And a wicked king is an awful thing for the nation. And as the church, as the people of God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, we have a completely and utterly faithful king. At long last, God has revealed his promised king, a king who has never done wrong, a king who has never sought after things that weren't his, a king who will bring perfect justice, a king who brings perfect mercy and steadfast love, a king who perfectly keeps the law 
of his heavenly Father, a king who does not seek his own advancement, but instead makes himself a slave for the sake of others. We no longer live in the days where there is no king. We have the Lord's promised king. Will we be a people of obedience to the king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it reveals to us our great need for King Jesus. As we look at this book, we ask that you would turn our hearts to you. Help us to trust more fully in your goodness, in your reign, and also to be a people who respond with obedience because we have a king who is faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.